Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. And thank you to all of you coming out tonight. Uh, it's wonderful to see such a big crowd and wonderful to hear that uh, it was booked out for tonight. Obviously, there is a great deal of interest in this subject. Before I begin, I want to open with a quote from someone who I think is uh, one of the world's greatest broadcast reporters working at the moment, John Simpson from the BBC. John wrote in the New Statesman uh, late last year on a piece on IS, Islamic State. He said, you have to hand it to Islamic State. It's not only good at capturing towns and cities, cutting off the heads of its enemies on a camera, selling off 14-year-old girls into sexual slavery, carrying out mass executions with great efficiency and cutting videos to music. It's also managed to persuade us that it can't be beaten. Just last week, Iraq's Vice President, Ayad Alawi, dismissed reports that the US-led coalition forces have weakened the Islamic State group. And in a report on the International Business Times website a couple of days ago, Alawi is quoted as saying in Davos when he was attending the World Economic Forum, ISIS is getting stronger. It's not true that they have lost control in Syria and are losing control in Iraq. Let us face the facts as they are. Now, his warning came as part of a plea for greater cooperation among Arab countries in the fight against IS, an effort he described as currently chaotic and uncoordinated. And he went on to say that without really an effort to get things moving with a structured strategy, not only in Iraq and Syria, but globally, then it will not work. We will not control ISIS, he said. Without this, the region is going to be exploding more than it is now and the whole region will be engulfed by fire. Now, obviously, very bleak and alarming words. And it was in stark contrast to, to words from President Obama during his State of the Union address last week, where he said very clearly in Iran and Syria, American leadership is stopping ISIL's advance. Instead of getting dragged into another ground war in the Middle East, we're leading a broad coalition, including Arab nations, to degrade and humiliate and ultimately destroy this terrorist group. The effort will take time, he said. It will require focus, but we will succeed. Now, the rise of the so-called Islamic State has introduced another complex dimension to an already volatile Middle East. It's forced a set of new alignments and realignments along multiple regional fault lines, including sectarian divisions and geopolitical rivalries. IS has confronted all the regional states from Iran to Saudi Arabia with a common enemy. Yet, it is the United States and its Western allies that have taken the lead in launching a military intervention to degrade and eliminate IS. 
despite the US's lack of successful track record in the region in the past, which of course raises a number of questions. Tonight is an attempt to unpack the nature of the mess that has become of the Middle East, a region so turbulent and yet so rich from which the world cannot simply disentangle itself. And we are very privileged and fortunate to have, as Erica said, one of the world experts uh, on this region here with us tonight, Professor Amin Saikal. Now, Amin, there are so many questions. Uh, it, it is hard to know where to start on this one, but I think perhaps given we've got quite a bit of time, we should start uh, a little bit further back. Let's go back to Iraq and talk first about how a vacuum of power was created in Iraq in the first place that has given space for the development of IS. I think the origins of the so-called Islamic State uh, really go back to the 2003 uh, US-led invasion of Iraq. The invasion itself was very successful, but the US handling of the post-invasion period uh, was incredibly messy. They, did, they definitely had a plan for the war, but they did not have a plan for how to win the peace afterwards. I think the biggest mistake that probably the United States made, and the American leaders pr probably would acknowledge now, is was the process of depathification, dismantling the Iraqi uh, bureaucracy, the Iraqi administration, and the Iraqi security forces, just simply because that they felt that they had been associated with Saddam Hussein's regime in one form or another. That amounted to basically the dismantling of the Iraqi state, and that generated a massive political and strategic vacuum which opened the way for various societal groups which had been uh, divided along ethnic sectarian lines to come out and fill that vacuum. Just on the vacuum itself, uh, how is it that uh, there wasn't enough consideration given to what was going to fill the space after that invasion was over? As I understand, there was a lot of bureaucratic infight in Washington. The State Department had a plan for the post-invasion period or the post-invasion transformation of Iraq. But it was very much sidelined by the Pentagon. And of course, there were different groups within the Pentagon who were competing with one another. And at the same time, there were different agendas, uh, which be, uh, either overlapped or contradicted one another. And as a result, uh, the United States could not really come up with a viable post-invasion plan in order to achieve what the United States had originally promised. That is to create a stable, secure, prosperous and democratic Iraq. And that remains to be the case to the present day. 
So with that, that uh, power vacuum, as you call it, um, that had, uh, was, was created, and of course this is, has echoes of what else has happened around the region previously and, and continues to now, but with that power vacuum, how did that actually give rise to IS itself? And Aaron, I think perhaps too we should talk a little, about, a little bit about who is IS? Well, I mean, the origins of the IS really goes back to the penetration of Iraq by Al-Qaeda. Under Saddam Hussein's dictatorship, Al-Qaeda had no niche in Iraq. But of course, some elements within the Bush administration were really looking for a link between uh, Saddam Hussein's regime and the 9-11 events. Uh, but they couldn't really find that link at the end, just as they didn't find the other reason for justification of the invasion, that was that Iraq had uh, weapons of mass destruction. And, but it was after the invasion that Al-Qaeda found the necessary space to establish itself in Iraq and then expand its operations in Iraq. And one of the men who was really leading the Al-Qaeda uh, operations in Iraq was Zarqawi. And at that time, the current leader of the Islamic State, uh, al-Baghdadi, was associated with Zarqawi. So in a way, uh, it was essentially Al-Qaeda which spawned what eventually became known as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria or what is now called Daesh. Uh, Daesh is basically the acronym for the Arabic name of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Uh, it really, from my point of view, doesn't matter whether you call it Daesh. Of course, the Islamic State leadership doesn't like it because they would like to uh, see the world acknowledging its legitimacy as a sovereign political and territorial state. And therefore, now they shun uh, the acronym Daesh. Uh, but it really doesn't matter whether it's called Daesh or whether it's called ISIS or ISIL. The important point is, how we are going to really deal with the reality behind this sort of name. Okay, but before we get on to that, so the, the what spawned it um, effectively was almost like um, it became a franchise of Al-Qaeda. And yet there has been a severing of, uh, of connection uh, with Al-Qaeda only last year. Yes, I think then the Islamic uh, or the ISIL uh, began to homogenize from 2010 onwards. And it really took off from 2012 particularly when they succeeded, this particular group, succeeded taking over Raqqa in northern Syria. Of course, they established their niche first in northern Syria, and it was from there that they started expanding their both political and territorial influence. And of course, Syria has virtually, by then, had disintegrated and remains so to the, to, to the, to the present day. And now also what we really have by and large, is a disintegrated Iraq. The biggest challenge now facing 
not only the Iraqis and the Syrians, and for that matter, the regional uh, players, and the international community, and more importantly, the United States and its allies, how to really put these two states back together to the pre-crisis and both countries, and that is going to be a challenge which is going to be extremely difficult to meet successfully. Who, uh, how big is, is IS? Do we know? Do we know what their numbers are? Well, we were initially told that the IS had 5,000 fighters. And then later on, we were told by uh, Western intelligence services there was they had about 10,000 fighters. Well, the latest figures that we've been given is 21,000, uh, sorry, 31,000. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we have been told that something like 21,000 uh, foreign fighters have gone and joined. 21,000. 21, have gone and joined the IS. And of course, officially, we've been told that something like 90 Australians are uh, working for them or fighting for them. Uh, but there are also some unofficial figures which put it to something like 400. So we really don't know the exact numbers. But what we do know that now IS has control over some 8 million people and are large swaths of territories in Iraq and Syria. Large swathes of territory and, and an enormous number of people for such as what effectively is a small troop if we are talking about 31,000 people. How, how are they managing to do this and, and where is the support coming from? Where is the money coming from? Where's the firepower coming from? Well, I think when they succeeded last June in defeating the Iraqi army, they managed to capture a lot of modern arms that the United States had supplied to the Iraqi armed forces. In fact, the, we were told by Washington at one point that they had built and trained and equipped the best army in the region. But obviously that did not turn out to be the case. So a lot of their arms, the, a lot of, of the arms that they were using, the IS using, really have been the ones they've been captured. And also they succeeded in taking over the Iraq's second largest city, Mosul, and they raided the central bank of Mosul. They got a lot of money from there, but let's not forget that prior to that, they were also funded to some extent from a number of Arab countries. If not from the Arab, directly from the Arab governments, but also at least Arab private citizens. Uh, we should be reminded that there is billions of dollars in the hands of private citizens in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in the United Arab Emirates. And they, these citizens, they do pay sadaqah or religious alms, 2.5% on their wealth. And often they really send, they send it to what they call religious causes or deprived groups, Muslim groups. In the past, a lot of money was channeled into, to the, into the coffers of the Afghan Mujahideen who were fighting uh, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. And then subsequently, uh, uh, a lot of money really went to, to the Taliban. And I recall from the um, former chief of intelligence of uh, Saudi Arabia, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, who personally told, told me that Saudi Arabia on its own uh, provided some $24 billion support to the Mujahideen and the Taliban alone. And that's a lot of money. And also I think initially 
uh, Qatar was providing uh, support, financial support. But the financial supports were not specifically for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It was for the uh, uh, Syrian opposition. But because the Syrian opposition was so divided, and because they were all the, a number, uh, it was dominated by a number of extremist groups, and the moderates really could not uh, get their act together, so part of the funding which was channeled to them also went to these extremist groups. So uh, in whose interest is it for uh, IS to continue to grow in strength? Well, uh, at the moment, publicly speaking, it's in the interest of nobody. It is an extremist Sunni group, and therefore it is very anti-Shia and anti-other uh, sects in Iraq as well as in, in, in Syria. Can but I, at the same I, time, but, because... But that's, that's said publicly, but, but privately, but it's a bit of a different story, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think it's a different story because yeah, Iran is totally opposed to IS. And so is publicly Saudi Arabia and its uh, uh, partners in the Gulf Cooperation Council. That's Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and so on. But let's not forget that one of the reasons that IS was able to establish a strong niche in Iraq was because it found sympathy or support among the Sunni population of Iraq, who form about 20% of the population of the country, and they had been terribly marginalized and ostracized under the Shia-dominated government of al-Maliki. So the grievances that these uh, the, uh, Iraqi Sunni had uh, had brought in not only a, a force like uh, IS to gain support or the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria to gain support, but also uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, which claims the championship or the leadership of the Sunni Muslim world, was sympathetic, very sympathetic to the Sunni population of Iraq. And in some ways, the, uh, the Saudis uh, were involved in a proxy conflict with the Iranians, because of course we know that also a majority of the population of Iraq is made up of uh, Shias. And they do have strong sectarian links with the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran. Uh, but my, 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 point, my point at the moment, is, uh, you know, the point that I wanted to make is that um, while Saudi Arabia and some of its partners and the Gulf Cooperation Council are publicly opposed to IS, at the same time, they do remain concerned about the plight of the Sunni segments of the Iraqi population. And if IS is a force which can help them and or defend their rights in one form or another, uh, one should not rule out the possibility of uh, Saudi Arabia and some of its allies uh, seeing the rolling back of uh, IS, but not its destruction altogether as a possibly anti-Iranian force. Which therefore would suggest that IS in one form or another is going to be with us for a long time. I think it's going to be there uh, for as long as the current conditions exist. It is the, the, the conditions of what I call um, authoritarianism across the region.
the reasons on which they draw in order to justify or expand the circle of their recruitment and justify their extremist actions range not only from the prevalence of authoritarian uh, regimes uh, across the region, uh, but also to um, Israeli occupation of Jerusalem, the Palestinian lands, uh, United States unqualified support of the State of Israel, and of course, uh, the United States support of various authoritarian uh, regimes in the region. And of course, since the Arab, uh, the reversal of the so-called Arab Spring and the support that the United States uh, has provided uh, to uh, the, the developments in Egypt and also to what is now sort of become very much well known as the counter-revolution uh, that is uh, taking place uh, across uh, uh, the Arab world. Let me ask you this. Uh, I, from what you say, I'm, I'm understanding or hearing that you don't think that the US, the United States, really has a place in, in fighting IS. Well, President Obama has uh, uh, gone into uh, this uh, air campaign against IS very reluctantly. I mean, we do recall that, you know, he came under a lot of pressure. Yeah, reluctantly, uh, but now doing it with, with great vigour and, and oh, well, bravado. Well, no, doing it with great vigour, but they're still extremely reluctant to send ground troops, uh, just simply because he doesn't want to get involved in another ground war, which could result in the return of too many body bags to the United States. A absolutely, but when he says things publicly such as that uh, they will be eliminated and, and uh, denigrated, um, I mean, I'm sure uh, military um, uh, experts would um, have to assume that somewhere along the line that's going to involve ground troops. I think this is what the military uh, experts have said, that, that, that eventually this war would have to be really won on the grounds and it's not going to be won from the air. Uh, and I think probably President Obama is very much aware of that. But at the same time, there is this thinking in Washington uh, that over a period of time. That's why President Obama said that this is going to be a war or a conflict which is not going to be uh, f finished in weeks or months, but possibly years. Do you uh, think it is, it is correct that the, the US take the lead on this, the US and its allies? My personal position from the very beginning has been that while the origins of the conflict really go back to the 2003 invasion, and perhaps some people might even go further back and uh, you know, the, the, under the personalized state that Saddam Hussein had created, um, that what has really emerged in, since last year, it's a more of a regional problem. I felt it was imperative and indeed very reasonable for the uh, that this problem be left to the regional actors to deal with it. I just simply cannot imagine that, for example, Iran would sit back and allow Baghdad to fall to Islamic State. It would be too much for Iran in terms of its overall strategic interest in the region to let Baghdad fall. Or for that matter, I just cannot imagine that Saudi Arabia and its partners 
and the Gulf Cooperation Council and their Arab supporters across the region would sit back and allow the IS forces to cross the borders of Jordan, Kuwait, and so on. My, I, I feel very strongly that this was a very unique opportunity that the United States and its allies should have used in order to bring about a degree of regional cooperation. In fact, the IS could have been used as an incentive to bring about regional cooperation because ultimately, if IS is an enemy, a common enemy to all the regional states, then they had to act in some ways collectively in order to defend themselves against this menace which has really emerged. The, the difficulty the there, though, there are a number of difficulties I can see, but, but one being that uh, assuming that all the players in the region would act, but as you've just said a moment ago, for some of them there is an interest in an IS of some nature or form still existing. Uh, the other is that um, you know many of these regional players would admit themselves that they rely on the US time and time again for this kind of intervention. And in fact, there's this lovely quote from Joe Klein, the uh, the journalist who writes for the Time uh, Time magazine, who said just recently that um, when he was uh, he was travelling through the Middle East, uh, a, a, an Arab diplomat said to him, uh, "When in trouble, we always call 911." In other words, we call on our American friends. Now, isn't that what we're seeing here, They're that reliance? And also your theory then that if the region was left to its own devices, it would have taken action also assumes that the region, the various actors would have worked together. And there's no evidence that that, that would occur. Well, I mean, there is uh, no question that once the United States uh, and its allies took the lead, then there was less pressure on the regional actors to act. They could have sort of sat back. I think the participation of the Arabs, Arab countries, in this international coalition is more of a symbolic nature rather than importance in terms of substance. Yes, they have, for Saudis have carried out some air bombardments and the Jordanian Air Force have carried out some, but on the whole, they have not really come into this campaign in a very big way in order to uh, reduce uh, their dependence or the dependence of the campaign on the United States and its Western allies, which are doing the heavy lifting at the moment. And that may continue to be uh, the case for some time to come. Explain to us um, uh, something about the, the religious extremism that has been at the heart of this, and partic particularly in the propaganda war that seems to have attracted foreign fighters, etc. Um, how, how can this sort of extremism be contained or dealt with? Well, I think it's reached a point, uh, from my perspective, that the uh, UN Secretary-General call should call a re regional summit of the, or the, a summit of the regional heads of states. Because even if Saudi Arabia and some of its allies are very concerned about the plight of the Sunnis in Iraq, ultimately they don't want the Islamic State to become an incredibly viable and challenging force. They don't want that. Because that would really challenge the legitimacy of many of the regimes 
and the area. And I think this regional summit should also be participated and supported very strongly by the five permanent uh, members of the uh, United Nations Security Council. There has to be a regional consensus. And the regional consensus is not going to really emerge until such time that the regional heads of states get together with the support of the five permanent, of the Security Council members, to uh, come up with a, re a resolution of some of the very fundamental issues. But that would not be just, I mean, in terms of the military operations. They will have to really come up with a very viable and comprehensive political strategy. Because there are so many uh, root causes of extremisms which cannot be resolved by military actions. And therefore, a comprehensive a political strategy has to be designed in order to deal with those root causes of uh, extremism which defy military solutions. It, just the extremism, if we come down to, I guess, grassroots level, when you've got um, uh, young people around the world, including from Australia, you know, sitting in their bedrooms on Facebook and on, online and getting uh, rather, you know, excited about the prospect of joining this fight. And then we're here, we, we've got, uh, you know, someone in the Northern Territory, a Labor Party figure, going off to, to fight with the, the, the Kurdish Peshmerga. Uh, it, it seems unstoppable. And as you said before, with so many foreign, thousands of foreign fighters, it would seem unstoppable. Again, the attraction seems to be something that is, is almost impossible to put down, and that's that, that the fervor, <coughs> that passion, and the, the, uh, a religious attraction that many of us just don't understand. Well, this is the first time that uh, Islamic group has succeeded in establishing a very strong territorial base and declaring an Islamic state or Khilafat, which is basically trying to present itself as successor to earlier Khilafats or Islamic states in the Muslim history. The Khilafat was abolished by the founder of modern Turkish state, Mustafa Ataturk, in 1924. But there are groups across the Muslim world that who are still very no no uh, nostalgic about the Khilafat. And they have been advocating the unity of Muslims under a single leadership, and groups like Al-Qaeda, Izb-Tahrir, and a number of others have been, remained very much devoted to this um, ideal. But I think they're all sort of dreaming, because what has really happened since the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and the colonization of many parts of the Middle East uh, after World War I, and then the age of decolonization, that the concept of nation state has taken stronger roots in the Middle East than the concept of uh, a borderless Ummah or Islamic community, or the concept 
of Khilafat. Today, if you ask a Saudi, who are you? He would first tell you, I'm a Saudi. Then he will tell you, I'm an Arab. And third, he will tell you that whether he's a Sunni Arab or a Shia Arab. And then fourth, he might tell you that which tribe he may come from or which province he may come from. And the same applies right across across the board. But it, it, it would seem, um, and forgive my terrible pronunciation, but it would seem that the emotional pull of a caliphate uh, has, has been very successful in that it has pulled people from around the world uh, to this idea. And it, 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 there are some very simplistic messages that sound good, they tweet well, all that kind of stuff, uh, about um, uh, creating a, a, an Islamic state that seems to be, at core, uh, wanting to be at war with, with, with the West? Well, there are uh, quite a number of uh, uh, young, hot-headed, if I could put that that way, Muslims uh, in the West uh, who are attracted uh, to this new, quote-unquote, Islamic political and territorial state which is coming to existence. And of course, many of them may be marginalized in the Western societies. And I think what has happened uh, recently in France, uh, this issue of marginalization has been very much acknowledged by the uh, French leadership. And of course, that's also an issue uh, also in the United States and many other European countries and Australia and uh, possibly uh, uh, Japan uh, and a number of other countries as closely associated uh, with the uh, or states which are within the Western Alliance. Um, but there is no a very dangerous dimension is taking shape. And that is that the jihadis in the Middle East being countered by uh, Western counter-jihadis. And uh, we have uh, recently heard the example of Matthew Gardner. Uh, who has uh, uh, gone uh, to uh, Iraq in order to uh, uh, fight uh, uh, for uh, Peshmerga, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Kurdish uh, militia. Uh, and of course, the Kurdish militia is not an internationally recognized force. It's not an internationally legitimate force because it's not under the control of the Baghdad government uh, at all. It has been operating for years independent of the Baghdad government and that's why the Kurds have succeeded in establishing an extensively autonomous state in the north which is just another challenge even if the IS is not there. And I think the, 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 the Kurdish issue would be another challenge not only to the Iraqi government but also to the region. But that's another issue. But of course, there's no also various groups which have been set up in the West. And one of them is this, the lines of Rogova, which basically means in Turk, Kurdish West, that you're recruiting Westerners, who are non-Muslim Westerners, to go and fight for Peshmerga or for the Kurds in Iraq. And this carries the risk of uh, uh, a global uh, struggle between jihadis and counter-jihadis uh, taking, taking place. And it's not at the level of Western governments acting against the IS. It's at the level of uh, uh, people in the West acting against the people in the 
Middle East or for that matter in Iraq and Syria? There's no doubt IS has been, has been incredibly successful in its propaganda, without a doubt, uh, and, and its media as well. One of the difficult things, I think, in, in this um, war is certainly from a media perspective, it's impossible to get close. It's impossible to actually penetrate. And so, so much of what we hear is, uh, is imbued with great fear. And um, in fact, even pitching the idea of I as being all about pure evil uh, and a death cult, um, you know, it, it makes it psychologically seem like that IS is invincible. Uh, so in that sense, they've been very, very powerful and very clever in the way that they've, they've used the, the, the propaganda war, or won the propaganda war. Look, I just want to move on because we are running out of time, but let's get to our core question. Is IS vanquishable? Can it be defeated? I think the way you look at it at this point, IS is containable. But whether it can be defeated, that will depend very much on the extent that the regional countries and the international community succeed in changing the conditions across the region. And, and how does that happen? Well, I think the reforms will have to come from within the region. I don't think that the regimes in the region can afford to treat their citizens with the degree of restrictions, political and social restrictions, that they've done so far. They really have to open up the, their systems for wider participation on the part of their public and in support of policy uh, implementation and policy formulation processes. To me, the systems and most of the countries still remain very much closed. So you're talking about a spread of democracy? I'm talking about probably not something which would be the replica of Western democracy, but I'm talking about a degree of political pluralism, which we need to be in conformity with the building of civil society and in conformity with, wider, with the need for wider political participation as the foundation for liberty and then as a foundation eventual for some form of democracy which is going to comfortably rest with the some of the traditions which really define the characters of the people and the way of their, uh, the lives of the people in that part of the world. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.